Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 198 for May 28th, 2009. Listener feedback number 67. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMyPC. Do you think remote access to your PC is complicated? Think again. It's easy with GoToMyPC. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and private. And Steve Gibson is here. Except your parts. We're not covering the private parts. He's the general of private. Your private data. (laughs) From GRC.com and Gibson Research Corporation, creator of SpinRide. Hi, hi Steve. How are you? Hey, Leo. We're uh, approaching our double golden anniversary. We're at 198, and in two weeks, obviously, we'll be at 200. So... And then, of course, we have a short eight-week jump, and that's our four-year That's what blows me away. It's not the number yeah. of shows. It's the four years of continuous production that blows me away. That's incredible, Steve. Well done. Well, you know, we're, we've both been up for it, and we've never missed an episode. So, <laughs> Well, um, that's thanks to you, because I've missed, I missed episodes <laughs> on other shows, quite a few. So, well, that's really cool. Well done. Bravo. And I do, you know, as I'm as I'm running through the mailbag uh, from people who go to grc.com slash feedback, and enter their questions into the little web form there. So many people really appreciate the fact that they can count on an episode of Security Now every week. So Consistency is, is really everything in broadcasting, I have, I, have a, I think, you know. Yep. But uh, n- not easier said than done in many cases, so I'm really Unfortunately, we have a fertile topic, or I guess it's a mixed blessing that we have a fertile topic. There's uh, always all kinds of things going Ain't on with security. Yeah. yeah. And lots of technology to talk about, too, so. Well, this week on the Security Now, it's Steve's questions. I mean, your questions, Steve's answers, episode 198. So in just a bit, we're going to get to those questions and answers. We also have uh, security news. Yep. Errata and, and addenda. Errata. Yep. To, to get little, to get Latin on you. First, though, I'd like to mention our friends at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. We'd like to remind you once a month that Astaro is still there, ready to protect your enterprise, the ultimate in UTM, Unified Threat Management, the Astaro Security Gateway. It does so much in that little steel box. Not much bigger than a router. You can tell its quality, though. I mean, it is solid. And inside there, you get the best of breed in open source and commercial software doing everything you need it to do in security. Anti-spam, anti-phishing, dual virus protection for email, complete content filtering for the web, and antivirus for the web, anti-spyware, you've got peer-to-peer and instant messaging control with great granularity. You've got network protection, of course, the you know the state-of-the-art SPI firewall. You've got remote access and VPN, SSL VPN built in, complete intrusion protection. Uh, the, one of the newest things in version 7 is, uh, and I think this is so great, is transparent uh, encryption, decryption, and digital signing based on SMIME and OpenPGP of all your email. 
All inbound email is automatically decrypted. All outbound email is automatically encrypted if you want it, or at least digitally signed. Now, of course, for any users interested in a home user license, you go to astaro.com slash security now. But I've got a better deal for you if you're in business. Just go to astaro.com or call astaro, and you can get a demo unit and try it yourself directly. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O, and, and you can get that demo unit. Special deals, uh, I think that's still on for uh, people who are at the end of life with their Cisco PIC, PICS uh, unit. ASTARO.com or call 877-427-8276. Astaro, it's just the best. It's solid, rock-solid stuff. The Astaro Security Gateway. Visit them for more information at astaro.com. Steve Arino, let's see, I guess we should start with... Uh, the news. Is there anything got going news. on? Yeah. We got some news. Got some news. Yeah. Good news and bad news. Well, actually, kind of all bad news. Well, no. Um, uh, th- there is some good news. Uh, Microsoft just released Service Pack 2 for Vista. Um, so the good news there is that everyone who's setting up a new Vista system until now has needed to first install Service Pack 1 and then do the you know Windows update and stand back, maybe go on a short vacation um, while all the individual updates from Service Pack 1, which was March of 08, was when SP1 came out. So, you know, more than a year of, of security fixes and changes and patches and glitches and so forth. Now, if you just... Um, you, you do need SP1 installed as a prerequisite for SP2. So it's no longer the case. Remember that it used to be that you could just get the most recent service pack. In this case, um, service pack 2 only contains all the fixes since SP1 rolled up into a single deliverable. So if, you were in, if you're now setting up a new Vista machine, you need... SP1 and SP2, and you have to install SP1 before SP2, but it, you know, just those two actions brings you current as of today, as opposed to you know needing to go through all the incrementals. So that's good news. Um, and for what it's worth, anybody using Server 2008, this is a hybrid service pack, which is also service pack two for Server 2008. It Server 2008 came with SP1 built in. So there's no need for an SP1 for it, followed by SP2, just Server 2008, followed by this hybrid service pack SP2 for Vista and 2008, and that brings you current there. The other sort of news, it actually was Greg, my tech support guy, who who first noticed this, and that is that many people, as, as we've discussed, have had a problem with Windows XP Service Pack 3. I'm still not running it on my main system really? because it hurt me. When it's been I, a year. I know. And and that's the point is the blocker tool expired on May 19th. Right. right. And, and you'll remember that, you know, Microsoft provides the Service Pack blocker tool, which will, for a, for a period of a year, allow you to, to keep their windows update from trying to install the service pack on your system and um you you can however um tell it do not offer this to me again 
And I it so what happened was after the blocker tool expired on my own main system, it's like wait a minute, uh, this now I see what Greg's talking about. It's for if you know for the for the first time since a year from a, a year ago, it's saying hey, go for Service Pack three, and it's like no, I'm I'm still reluctant to do that. I mean they haven't changed Service Pack three, and it messed up things. So you know I, I'm I'm finding I'm cautiously putting it on additional systems that I have and I'm not seeing problems, but on systems where I know that it seems to be unhappy, I've not, I've not moved forward. So I guess I ought to make an image of this system and try it again. Um, It'd be um, nice not to fall too far behind. As I remember, the issue with the service pack three was driver incompatibilities that they, well, maybe that's Vista service pack one that they were patching. uh, So you, you could have, you know, you might have had, in other words, you might have had a fix in the interim. Did, yeah, did, a, did you do no patches after SP3 or no? Oh, no, no, I'm, um, I'm keeping, see, that's a nice thing, is Microsoft allows you not to install SP3 to opt out of that, yet will give you all the other incremental things continuing forward. So I'm, I'm, I'm frankly a little cloudy on, on how this all fits together. That is, if, if it seemed like, when you were installing SP3, all you were doing was catching up to all the incremental things between SP2 and SP3, which I was doing all right, along. Right. I was I was staying current. So it's like, okay, why do I need Service Pack 3 if I've been doing the incrementals all along? You know, it, it's certainly the case that on setting up a new system, just like we were discussing with Vista, where you would, you know, it's so much nicer to just be able to do SP1 for Vista and SP2 for Vista and then be current. So I, I, I certainly think that installing a brand new system, and I have, by the way, for example, when I was setting up my little tablet, this new tablet that I'm using at Starbucks, I, in, you know, and I, I'm an MSDN user, the, the, the developer network, so I have access to, to these um, uh, builds of, of, of Windows as part of the you know, $2,500 I pay every year to Microsoft right, for the right. privilege. So I'll, I installed, you know, brand new from scratch um, uh, XP, and then I think I put in Service Pack 2 and then Service Pack 3, because I think even with XP, you need Service Pack 2 at least before you can install XP's Service Pack 3. So I did that, and I had no problems. That I manually put in all the drivers myself, because this thing came with Vista, and it's like okay, well, I'm I'm not ready to do that yet. So I'm really happy with that, with XP Service Pack three on that machine. So Good. it makes sense Good. when you're when you're setting up a new system to do that. But for whatever reason, when I even though this main machine I'm sitting in front of now while I do the podcast with you, you know, it's a re- relatively recent install and setup of XP. Still, it didn't. It got a little funky when I put in Service Pack three. Really? So I was able wow. I was able to back out of it. Yeah, huh. and and actually. Greg, my again, my tech support guy has had several systems where I mean, this is the reason he was really concerned. He said, "Hey, what do I do now?" He said, "I mean, there are systems I absolutely know collapse with Service Pack three on them." Uh-huh. So yuck. So you're going to um, have to get it though. No, no way around it now. Yeah. Um, now, Macintosh security. Oh, don't know if I don't know if you've seen this, but there is a a bad known vulnerability in java which virtually the whole industry has fixed except apple really windows has fixed it all the linux 
and and various Unix builds have fixed it. Apple has not. It's been known since December of 08, um, long since been patched. The uh, One of the security researchers, sort of a gray hat guy, decided, you know, this is dumb that Apple has still not fixed this. Oh, um, so he released yes. an exploit. So he released a proof of concept. Oh, boy which has been decompiled, and the source is now available. Oh, I wish they would uh, do it this. Is, it is being exploited in the wild. The, the security community is telling people, you know, Mac OS X people, that they should disable the Java virtual machine support in Safari. It's been the, the same exploit is, a, is functional under Firefox, and... Uh, if you go to a malicious web page that is that is a that runs a Java applet, it can take over your machine. Hmm. Proof of concept code exists. It's it is truly being being exploited in the wild. So you know, I mean, I, I guess um, certainly a- Apple will now fix it. I mean, I'm you, there's no way. Does Apple off- use uh, uh, Sun's Java or do they have their own Java? I thought they no, use Sun's Java. And, Yes, okay. and it was Sun who who warned in December of '08 about the flaw, made the fix available. You know, I wonder why Apple hasn't pushed it since it's available it, from from Sun. It's a good question. I don't know if it if it if they missed it or if there was if they've got some reason. Um, I haven't been able to track that down, but I do know that certainly now the you know the pressure is turned. Yeah, up. no kidding. Yeah, it's odd and that now, they didn't fix it in the big, you know, that five hundred oh, megabit megabit patch. <laughs> the thirteen thousand. I mean, that, that just came out a week ago or two ago. I don't, I don't understand why they didn't. Uh... Yeah, and I, and in fact, that's what this guy was waiting for. It's like, okay, let's see if that does, does it, and they didn't. So I think we can. Ima- I, I imagine we'll see something shortly that Apple will say, okay, I guess you know, for whatever reason, we need to do this. So, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of dialogue in the community saying, well, Apple, you know, is arguably, you know, becoming a larger target as they're succeeding more, as they're moving more into the mainstream. I mean, it's no longer the case that it's, you know, such a small segment that, you know, people are ignoring it. Apparently, Apple uh, does their own Java. They're using uh, their own code, so that's why they're behind. They're not using Sun's code, yeah. Otherwise, they would have just shipped Sun's code and had done with it, I imagine. Okay. Well, and then it's, it's odd if it's really their own code that they that they've got the same problem that that well it's probably a reference at. you know there's a reference implementation that they that they um, modify yeah that they followed yeah okay <laughs> a bad reference <laughs> um last little bit of security news is that adobe under the increasing pressure to to get their act together with all the problems they've had in in pdf format interpretation in reader and in acrobat has announced what I think is sort of a mixed blessing. They said, okay, we're going to do regularly quarterly updates synchronized with Microsoft's second Tuesday of the month hmm. update. But they're not doing it monthly. They're, so they're only going to do every third one. Quarterly. And it's like, well, okay. I'm not sure that that's often enough. Right. Does that mean that they're, that they're not going to do one mid-quarter I mean, Microsoft does the mid-month when something comes up that's bad enough. People are so reluctant to admit there's something wrong with their code and patch it. 
Yeah. Or maybe yeah. it's just the issue of testing it and the concern that, you know, uh, companies have about implementing this stuff. And Well, but Adobe's no small group. Gosh, yeah. Um, and, and you've got to think, okay, Microsoft is managing this for this whole nightmare right. called Windows. I mean, all, all of Windows. And here, Adobe's got a reader. You know, basically yeah. they've got what's a the PDF. Tough? Yeah, what's they've got the... a PDF interpreter. Yeah. So they're anyway. They're they they've made a lot of noise recently, saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna really get serious." They've come up with their own acronym for like you know their security development life cycle, which is you know SDL is Microsoft's, um, but the the equivalent for them. And we're gonna be looking at old code that we've had in in Reader to make sure it's like, yeah, okay, good. Um, get going, folks, because you know PDF format. I mean, it has become you know, the standard, uh, you know, document transfer format right. for the net. I mean, they won that. Microsoft has tried, you know, a few of their own that, that never, they just sort of sputtered and never happened because, you know, again, Microsoft would like to <laughs> like to own that too. But, you know, Adobe owns that. And so it's like, okay, time to make this thing work solidly. Oh, it's just, and it's just about security. I just, I just think the quarterly doesn't sound to me, it's, it's like, well, okay, we're going to do it, but we're only going to do it every three months. Like, but up to well, now, up to now, they've been doing it whenever as necessary, as needed, right? As needed. Well, and what they've been doing is they've they've been doing the most recent version first, and then catching up backwards. You know, like then like releasing, for, like sort of, for example, like the, the the patch for nine came out first, and then eight and seven came out a few weeks later. Right. I mean, like, and almost deliberately, like a week later, almost <laughs> like they're saying, well, you're going to be vulnerable. We're going to leave you vulnerable <laughs> for an extra week if you're not using nine. Yeah. It's I like, mean, well, it, it, that's it, a bad, that's a really bad. bad it really is. That's a fundamentally flawed policy. And, well, it's, and it's it driven had, by commercial concerns. I mean, that's not a nice thing right, to do. Right. Well, it had to be done deliberately, too, because they announced a month beforehand that the nine patch would be available on this date mm. and the seven and eight patches would be available one week later oh they knew so they planned just upgrade you'll be patched uh-huh that's yeah, not we'll nice patched a week so you'll be patched a week sooner yeah that's not nice like, okay so now it's I, I mean watch i'm predicting here that this month that this quarterly update will not stand it's there's just this is wrong and so we're going to see a flaw come out that's really bad, and they will do a mid-quarter. Well, even Microsoft does that, though, right? Out, that's of, out of cycle but, patches. But they're saying they're not going to. They say they're they will saying, never do that. They're, well, they're saying we're going to we're we're going to make them we're going to update more often, and it's going to be quarterly, <sighs> and it's sufficient. And it's going to be synchronized with Microsoft second Tuesday. That I don't understand. Like, Is that so? Like I don't understand why you would synchronize I it. I don't get anything about this. This is just you know. <laughs> What what you ought to do is, especially for something like Reader, it's like okay, it's it's not like the whole OS. It's right. a reader, and right. there's you know there's alternative readers. So it's like, look, if there's a problem, fix it fast and give us an update. Right. And you know we'd rather have three in a row on successive days if that's what it takes to keep our PDF reader secure. And we're certainly not going to wait around for months while a known problem is out there. Right. That's just dumb. So. Anyway, that's Adobe's big news and announcement. So it doesn't make any sense to me. We'll see. <laughs> we will. We will be watching this closely, and we'll let our listeners know what happens. You know, do you, do you remember? I mean, this this late latest double flaw. But have there been a lot of flaws uh, 
before that? I mean, oh yeah, Adobe's been having lots of problems. Oh. I mean, like almost every month or two, it's like, oh, here's a PDF problem again. Oh, yeah. Well, they it's, need they need to patch it more often then. Clearly, yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, in reading through my mailbag, I a number of readers took exception to our sort of dismissive glibness. I guess I would phrase it that way about Ada. The language. Ada. Oh, Ada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The programming language. Yeah, see, I've did it ever get implemented right? I mean, that yes. was our... It yes, did. Yes, yes, I've now okay. been pounded on. Okay. I've, they've enumerated all the compilers. There's open source compilers, closed source compilers. There's sideways compilers. There's PDA <laughs> compilers. It is everywhere. Ada is everywhere. So I just want everyone to know, yes, it. you know, my information now, is dated. Oh, and people are using it. That's are, the question. There are, there are is it being used in the... Well, okay, but it's the DOD which invented it using it. I don't know. Yeah. But colleges are training with it oh, really? because it's such a great language, and I just, okay, fine. Right, I, right, I right. give up. But yes. It's, <laughs> it's a it's wonderful everywhere. language. We love it. We love it. Uh, uh, I meant to tell you, or t to mention last week, and I forgot, Leo, so it's in my errata list here. I also loved, but this time really seriously, Star Trek. Yes. Oh, we didn't talk about it. Yeah, you were about to see it two weeks ago, and I didn't I, want to I spoil it for I, you. I hung up the phone, and I went yeah. there. Actually, I've seen it twice now. Uh -huh. I thought it was spectacular. Everything I could ask for, I know, I mean, I've, I've even in my own sci-fi uh, news group, we have a, a sci-fi uh, group at GRC. Um, there oh, you are, do? I didn't know that. That's oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we just did a sort of a place to talk about because, I mean, so many, there's such a cross interest in, you know, right, sure. technology and science. Is that grc.com slash forums? No, um, I ha I don't have an a web-based viewer. We have a tr traditional old NNTP, you know, network news transfer protocol, NNTP news server. So anybody who has forgot, for example, has Outlook or Thunderbird, you know, you, need, you just need a real news reader. Um, and it's, so it's news.grc.com is the server, and when you subscribe to that, there's a whole bunch of, of news groups. One is is grc.sci-fi, S-C-I-F-I. Okay. Um, but anyway, so the, the point I was going to make was that there were a bunch of sort of purists who were saying, well, this wasn't at all like TOS, which of course is the acronym for the original series. And it's like, well, right, um, okay. So maybe they thought they were going to get what sort of what we heard. We heard for years that this was going to be, you know, where Kirk and Spock first meet and and go forward. And so they were really wanting a formal, correct prequel to the original Star Trek series. A re this, this was a reset was what this was. This is this more than was. a prequel. This is starting over. Yes. And I, I'm, I will not say too much. Because I don't want to be a spoiler. Right. I, I avoid spoilers because I want to see normally these things for myself. So I can't explain what it was that happened that that really releases this new this this movie and anything see uh, you know subsequent from needing to follow the same timeline that we all know so well who've been following Star Trek for all these years. So anyway. I uh, I just wanted to say I saw it. I saw also Terminator Salvation yesterday, and I really liked it too. Really, because it got crappy reviews. I know it's something was missing. I can't quite 
put my finger on it. I mean, you know, the James Cameron Terminator movies, the first two were just spectacular because, yeah, you know, yeah. that's what James Well, they Cameron had honored. Does. Honored is the key. <laughs> Without honored, well, you are not the Terminator. And uh, this one was good. I mean, it was not fantastic. But again, oh, I'm I'm like a, you know, a, a thirsty man in the desert. Exactly. You'll take fiction. anything. Yeah, so yeah, I'll yeah, take yeah. Anything. You'll take anything. And this was fine. I, this, I thought this was better than number three. Number three was sort of, yeah, you know, really forgettable. But I, I think I've was, only seen one or two, one and two, to be honest. Yeah, and uh, you know, I watched all of the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, uh, I have no desire to see Fox this new and, one. So I've, I'm pretty much well steeped in Terminator ness, and maybe that was part of the problem. Is that maybe it's a little overexposure of of all things Terminator at this point? But I did want to mention that uh, I saw it and I liked it. But Star Trek was spectacular. I mean, I I was literally I was trembling. And out of breath. Oh, when, when Star Trek oh, the first time I was, I, I'm a sucker. For, oh, it was so I good. <laughs> it, was great. it was so good. That's well, cute. I have That's to really know, cute. Leo. I'm. I have to tell you. You know, I think I mentioned to you before that my buddies and I in high school made a Star Trek movie. Oh yeah, that's right. It was on eight millimeter back yeah. in the, in yeah. the super. No, you come days. by it honestly. Yeah, and you know we did beaming out by standing under. The chandelier of of you know, so in, in the dining room of one of our friends, and that was before the movies. That was after just one the one series, just the original series. So you really get a lot of credit because that original series, as as I think most people know by now, was kind of a flop and canceled early on. They didn't do a well, whole lot of episodes. I had dinner with Gene Roddenberry. You did at Comdex one year, and this was after this. I mean, this was obviously years later, and it was it was funny because I. It, I, I met Stu Alsop uh, down at the bar in the in the Las Vegas Hilton, and we chatted about the idea of me doing a column in InfoWorld, and of which which of course did happen. Uh, be, you know, I did that for eight years. But uh, Stu said, "Hey, you know, what are you doing for dinner?" And I said, "I have, don't have any plans tonight." And he says, well, "Why don't you come with me? Where I'm going to you know meet some guys, and we're going to you know go go have some food." I said. I'd be glad to. Oh, so man. I had I had no idea <laughs> oh. what the group was. But we go upstairs to the Las Vegas Hilton, oh. and there's just like three regular random people sitting, you know, kind of lounging in the hotel room. I guess waiting for Stu to show up, and uh, you know, and he, I was tagging along, and so these people introduced themselves round robin, and one of these guys says, "Yeah, I'm Gene Roddenberry." Jeez, Louise. <laughs> now, okay, now. I have to explain, Leo, that, you know, we stood under the chandelier with the camera, the Super 8 film camera mounted on a tripod, running the, you know, and everyone stood still. Then we stopped the camera and everyone got out of the way. And then we started the camera again (laughs) and filmed some time with nobody there. Yeah. Smart. Then after after the film had been developed, we went back in and on the emulsion side found the spot where oh, everyone in a, sing, in a single frame disappeared, and then we began scratching. You scratched it. Oh, yes. my goodness. We scratched the emulsion I'm so on impressed. both sides, diminishing in each direction, so that when you, when you played the film back, you saw everyone get under the chandelier, and then Fantastic. the appropriate sound effects, and then suddenly all of the centers of them began scratching until it, they were completely scratched out, and then... It dissolved again, and they were gone. So it looked like they transported. That's you know, fantastic. And, and we needed, we needed a. Did you go? An, 
Oh, we had sound effects. In fact, we even had an alien sounding bad guys. Um, uh, Scott Wilson was, was actually, this is where most of his filming took place. And he was arguably the most over the top Trekkie in our group. His, his sister had a large collection of stuffed bunny rabbits. Oh, you had tribbles. Well, no, no. These were the aliens. They were evil. They were the bunons. <laughs> the bunons. The bunons. And so, oh, Steve. Oh, it was bad. So, how old were you? This is like fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's and so. So, cute. you stop frame animation oh, to so have the you know, the attack of the bunons. But when they when they of course had to, to hail the ship and be threatening, we needed them to sound alien. Right. So, what we wanted them to say was, "We are the bunons." <laughs> Surrender your ship or be destroyed. I think I think we talked about this last week and you did it backwards. Well, yes. Well, I, I came up with the idea since this was actually, you know, that brown, you know, actual magnetic recording tape that right. we no longer Mylar, have. Mylar, yeah. We and this was real to real deck, so we recorded We Are the Bunons, Surrender Your Ship or Be Destroyed. And then we reversed the tape mechanically. Oh. And if you pl- and so that it would play backwards, and we listened carefully to the way it sounded, and learned how to say it backwards, which happens to be Yosha Bedidro Snana Banani Peshoy Yerneros. Now, of course, it is. <laughs> if you say it carefully, it you actually you know because things sound a certain way backwards. It's it's actually more like. Yosha Bedidro, Snana Banani, Peshoy Yerneros. Hey, hey, um, if you're listening to this, Tony, could you just take that and reverse it? And let's hear what that sounds like. So now I have no idea what that sounded like, but I think it was probably pretty good. Well, we recorded that <laughs> and then we reversed that. Right. So that re-reversed the reversal. Right. And it really, it was, is, it came out, we are the Banan. Surrender your ship or be destroyed. And we never I can't do this in real time, but I think, I think Tony is going to do this on the show and you're going you're <laughs> well, to hear this. I have to tell you that because I, I mean, I never obviously forgot this, nor what those phrases were. Remember when I was messing around with that, with, with the SIP compressor? Yes. And, and I wrote a little app that would just, you know, you, you could record something and then play it back. Right. Just for the hell of it, I had a different shift key you could hold down and it would play the buffer backwards. <laughs> and I, I practiced that again. And that's just the way I remembered it. So we can be pretty sure that that's actually going to sound like that. When it, we, it'll be something like that. Yeah. But anyway, so yes, d- serious over the top Trekkies. And I've, you know, I've been such ever since. Oh, that's And great. I'm one of the, You've I'm one of the stripes. people. Who think that the next generation was the ultimate series? That's you know the the whole Jean Luc group. I just think I agree. Was, I kind of agree. I think that was a really great group of people. Well, and it was, you know, this recent Star Trek movie was action. It was you know fun and action, and that it was that sort of thing. The next generation was was, was a far more cerebral show, which is is why I liked it. But, yeah, I like the yeah, me too. I like the strategy and the saw sol- and, and the solving the problems and that and, kind of you know, stuff they'd meet in their little conference room and go around and give right. their opinions and, right. and then jean Luc would declare what action they were going to take you know and and i just anyway so so i sat next to roddenberry at dinner and i didn't want to be like the oh you know the annoying groupie but uh, i did find an opportunity to ask him what happened 
And he said that what happened was they had a three-year run. There were three seasons of right. the original series. and Something like 77 episodes. I can't remember the exact number. And after that, it was canceled. Yeah. And he, the way Gene explained it to me was that several years later, they were developing the technology, the first developing technology for um, the uh, the TV demographic profiling. What's it called? Where you're a um, the Nielsen ratings. The Nielsen ratings. Yeah. Yes, they were developing the original Nielsen technology, which which factored demographics in for the first time, and that was the difference. Star Trek was canceled after the third season. Because the raw numbers were, didn't, you know, justify its continued production compared to other shows. But when years later the raw data was reprocessed using demographic technology, it turned out that it had the most perfect demographic profile for advertisers of any show that had ever been oh. created. It was the yuppies, until the young, tech TV, <laughs> yeah, uh, young, upwardly mobile, you know, uh, young, you know, married newlyweds yeah. who were buying strollers and cars yeah. and homes. Smart and, people. I mean, it's it's exactly who advertisers wanted. There just had never been a better show, but they didn't know it at the time, and so they said, "Well, look at the numbers." You know, look. I mean, look at the count. Tech TV was like that. We uh, we had the most uh, highly educated and affluent audience ex- on cable television, except for the Golf Channel. But it, inevitably, advertisers are slow to respond to that. Yeah, it's you know it's one of the reasons the twit succeeds is because the, uh, the demographics. I was of just going to say, good. not our advertisers. No, they yeah. get it. They get yep. it. Yep, exactly. Uh, actually, speaking of them, let me mention. Go to my PC. I know you probably have a, a spin right letter, and then we have a bunch of emails. Yep, we that do. We want to answer. We're going to get through uh, all of those in a second. Uh, go to my PC. These are the folks at Citrix. They do know. <laughs> I don't have to tell them uh, how smart our audience is. In fact, one of the things I really like about our advertisers is they um, all, I think almost all of them, let's see, go to my PC, go to meeting, uh, Astaro, almost all of them offer free trials because I think they realize that a smart audience is not going to be, you know, satisfied with what I tell them. They're going to want to try it for themselves. And so we're going to set it up that you're going to have 30 days free of go to my PC so you don't have to trust what I say, you could actually try it yourself. Some people, uh, you know, they, they, it's funny, they change the copy every week because uh, they want to try different strategies. And uh, this week, the copy is some of you probably haven't tried go to my PC because it might seem too complicated. They don't realize <laughs> that this is going to be on security now. <laughs> and it's quite the opposite. Uh, this is the most sophisticated audience. I would guess the most sophisticated technologically audience anywhere. You guys certainly are not turned off or intimidated by go to my PC. But I will point out that a lot of the people who in your life who might want to use remote access software probably are. And this is why it's a good recommendation from you to them. They're going to call you less. Go to my PC does have 24-7 tech support. Very good tech support. You're not going to need it. They're not going to need it because it's just so easy to install. Java-based. Uh, it's a click of the mouse. You say, yes, I trust uh, Citrix and I trust this Java client you install it literally within 60 seconds you're ready to go you've got that now running on your pc and anywhere you go whether it's china whether it's the backyard a hotel an airport you have 
128-bit SSL encrypted connection to your office PC. You just log on to go to mypc.com with your secure username and password. It does NAT traversal because you're going through this third party. Uh, so it, is, it could not be easier. You don't, never have to configure the router. I mean, it just works. And if you've tried any other remote access product, you know that's not an easy thing for them to say. It just works. Never been a security issue ever with Go to My PC because it uses TLS and SSL. Industry standard, top of the line. Try it now for 30 days and, and maybe better yet, since you probably are the tech support. I use it with my mom. You're the tech support for your family. You might want to get them to try it too. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Free for 30 days. Give it a shot. This is a very smart audience, so I'm not going to insult you by saying you've, you found this too complicated. But on the other hand, not having to tear your hair out about a program like this, there's a lot to be said for that. We'll let you tear your hair out about other stuff. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the uh, Security Now show. So let's see. So, we, we got some letters. Um, you got a letter, a spin right letter. A nice note from um, a, not a listener, I think, this time because he wrote to our support email and he's, his name is Bob Blaine. And he said, Hi. I just wanted to thank you for your SpinRite software. I was a little surprised at the price and wasn't sure if the problem I was having was going to be fixed by it. But based on reviews and your money-back guarantee, I thought I'd take a chance. Your software was easy to use and actually fixed the problem I was having. I'm very impressed! Exclamation point. He said, the problem was that I had a hard drive failure on an XP machine that was not allowing the machine to come up into Windows. It was giving some obscure message that I eventually found out meant that the registry file was corrupt. Amazingly, Spinrite fixed that so that I was able to get into Windows and back up all of the data on the drive before I replaced it. Thanks again, Bob Bling. So, yes, Spinrite to the rescue. I think it's worth emphasizing. I'm sure, but... uh, that's I think just, it's worth emphasizing that uh, money-back guarantee because I think people do, you know, a new hard drive is about the same price as Spinrite in some cases. Yeah, in fact, I was listening to the your replay of the of um, a podcast. What, maybe uh, the tech the, guy or? The, you know, it, was, it was the one that was just playing uh, with, with, with Andy Anako. Mm. Um, just, Mac just Break Weekly, yeah. Mac Break Weekly, just as, as we were getting ready to do this. And... He, he made a comment about you were talking about ripping DVDs and he said, yeah, you know, you can get a terabyte drive now for 89 or for 90 bucks. Exactly. And I'm thinking, yeah. And that's what Spinrite costs. And he said, so, you know, there's really no need to burn all those. Just rip them all onto that terabyte drive. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, yes, please do. Because <laughs> please. Why Good. is that, Steve? Put your whole movie collection on there <laughs> because I will have your money. <laughs> When that eighty-nine dollar terabyte drive craps out on you, we're buying. And, uh, are you are you saying people should buy fancier drives or just this I'm is inevitable? Put all, put all the crown jewels, put everything you have <laughs> on hard disk. Well, don't throw away the DVDs. Keep them. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's I'm, it really is true, and, and that uh, if you know there's data on there, it's worth more than eighty-nine bucks. It's it's not a question of buying another drive. It's a question of getting that data back. Yes, I mean people. You know, for a while, people were saying, well, gee, Steve, you know, $89, that's pretty steep. And I say, yes, I understand. You know, and then, then they say, well, we could buy a new drive for that. Yes, but, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not all of the data that you've got. It's not everything that's been installed in your system before. Right, right. It's not, you know, I mean, what's your time worth to like, you know, recreate everything from scratch? And in some cases, 
These are irreplaceable. These are people's entire photo libraries that have never been backed up, never put somewhere else. Well, and the other issue is uh, you're not just talking about recovery. You're also talking about maintenance. And you probably yes. have a lot of drives. Nowadays, we, I mean, I have dozens of hard drives. I, buy, I literally buy terabyte drives by the, by the six-pack now probably about once a month. Yep. And so and- Spinrite's really great on checking those drives before I put them in use and making sure they're in great shape and maintaining them. Yes, um, that you know, I do read people who say, "Hey, you know, I I bought Spinrite, I run it, I'm waiting for a miracle." But you know, maybe the fact that I'm running it on my drives every few months means that I'm never going to have a disaster that requires a miracle. And of course, that's the optimal situation. Right. You want to keep the drive from from getting that bad. But yes, we do sell it with a money back guarantee. The problem is, I can't give a demo because. Once you run the demo and it you're done, problem, you're done. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're uh, done. Okay. People often people often say, "I want to, you know, download a trial." Yeah, and you don't want to do the thing. And this really bugs me that the unerased programs. There are some out there will say, "Oh yeah, I can see all your data." Five hundred bucks, please. And that's even worse. That's like, the, come that on, tease. That's yes. that tease. Yeah. yeah. So no, it's worth it. Money back guarantee. If it, you know, and that's I think that's the best way to do it. That's basically yeah. you're basically saying. Try it for free. If it doesn't work for you, I'll, I'll, I'll refund your money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there may be people who bought it and then asked for their money back anyway. It's like, well, if that's what, how you want to play the game, that's fine, too. I'm not going to, you know. I bet that doesn't happen very often. I, not among our audience. No. Our audience is great. No. And, you know, they help make the podcast possible and make GRC possible. That's right. We want to support Steve. That's for sure. I have my in my hands. 12 questions from 12 listeners, good and true. All for you, Mr. Gibson, starting with number one, Alexandre in Quebecois. He's a Quebecois. He says, you made me love you. Actually, made me love assembly language, he says. (laughs) Assembly language. Hi, Steve. I'm a young 18-year-old guy from Quebec, and I just love your show. Pretty much everything you made for the beautiful, yet now somewhat dirty computing world. I'm also a Spinrite customer, yay, and I love it. Sorry if the English isn't very good. I'm a French guy. So I'm very... Your English is better than mine. Don't don't worry, Alexander. So I'm very interested in assembly language programming for Windows. That is just awesome. I just love hearing that. And I would love to know what assembler you use or would recommend to me. It, it, it should. I would like to use the same one. Anyway, I know NASM, N-A-S-M, but I've become interested in FASM, F-A-S-M. I don't know much, but it looks very good. Have you tried it? And what do you use? Um, okay. Again, I try to choose questions that are representative of many that we receive. And there's been a an interesting surge of interest, I guess, because I've been talking about it among our listeners, about assembly language and Windows. And there have been some postings, and I know, in the GRC news groups. And I, I've run across questions like this many times in reading through um, listener email. My recommendation is to go check out amasm32.com, the website, www.masm32.com. It is a tremendous site. And, you know, I have always been programming Windows in assembly language. And I was sort of on my own when I began, um, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, Um Masm32.com is a site that has a tremendous 
tool that's at version 10 now, um, a, a complete IDE, a, an integrated development environment, all the libraries and include files, lots of sample code, the source for everything. Um, it's, it is dedicated to programming Windows in assembly language. There's also a forum that you can that is available there with with a whole bunch of enthusiasts. They're all doing exactly this. They're they're all aspects of programming Windows in assembly language. So there really is a a complete. I don't want to call it really a subculture. And, and this is free. Yes, it's all free. Wow. Now, Masm is Microsoft's assembler. That's what I use. It's what I've always used. Um, I really like it because. They've extended it, the syntax of it, just a little bit in order to make it more pleasant to use. For example, you can say dot if EAX equals ECX and then have a bunch of code and then an, a dot end if. And so you have the, a traditional if end if enclosure. Oh, that's neat. And, Is, I in, and that's done and with I'll, the macros? Well, no, it, it, it's native to the language. The assembler knows this. Oh, that's yes, neat. It's built into the assembler. You're starting and to get have, a little higher level now here. And, and you can have an else, for example. So if oh. something else. And then but, but, but the reason I love it is that it exactly assembles into the same code I would write. So it's but still I, very clean. There's not a lot of cruft well, there's introduced zero, as there zero would be in a compiler. Overhead. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I would have to write CMP. EAX comma ECX and then JNE, which is to j jump not equal, then to something down below. And I, you know, what I have to, I, I have to invent some label for it to jump to, um, which you know clutters things up. Visually, it's easier to see if it's right. if there's like like an if end if and then it, and, and then you indent the code th that is inside. So there's that that you ha even have looping constructs repeat until or or while, uh, and mean so you've got those those nice flow control things that are, you know, the standard structures from higher level languages that exactly comp that exactly assemble into the same thing you would write for yourself, and they they have a a really nice construction called invoke where you can which is used for calling subroutines including the windows api so i can say for example you know um uh invoke space create file followed by a list of arguments and and the way windows works is when you call into the windows api it expects those arguments to be on the stack right. in reverse order so it so, actually pu puts them on the stack and everything Yes, it, oh, it, nice. it, it will it'll convert the, the lengths to the to to something else. You're able to say a, a address of of a um, if, if Windows wants a pointer to something, you, you could say a DDR and then the value. So so my point is that without any overhead, you're still programming an assembly language at bare metal. Yet it's a really pleasant environment and. This this masm32.com website has a, the 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 core. It, it's at version ten that you can download that installs a, basically a complete working development environment on your system and help files, all the libraries, include files. Basically, it's a turnkey get you up and going. And uh, 
So I recommend it without reservation. When I did assembly programming, and I, I used to do it on a 68000, which was a much cleaner, easier processor, I think, than the yeah, X86. Yeah, very, very nice instructions. <laughs> much very, nicer. Very orthogonal, meaning or, you can yes. do most things in, you know, in most instructions. And no memory segmentation or any of that stuff. Right. Um, but I used macros a lot to make it look uh, more English-like. Do you use, do you, in fact, I noticed a lot of assembly language programmers would build large macro libraries to kind of simplify things. Yeah, I I do that too. For example, um, I have uh, a macro called zero, Z-E-R-O. And so I'll say zero E-A-X. And all that's doing is it's an XOR. Or an XOR. Oh, you're Yeah, um, um, you could use a move, you know, move E-A-X Is XOR more efficient? Yes, an XOR is smaller. It it does modify the flags. That is the condition code. But sometimes you want that. But 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 the point is, if I wrote XOR EAX EAX, you know, I know that that's going to zero it because if you if you XOR something with itself, right. you know, the ones cancel out, the zeros, you know, were never on, right? Um, and so it ends up being zero. But if I if when I as I'm reading the code, if I see Z E R O, then I I immediately know what I'm doing there. Right. And I've got a bunch of things. I have one a favorite of mine is called, is called Round Div R O U N D I V, which is a is a fancy little bit of code with no that that doesn't involve any other registers, but it does a division and then it compares the the remainder to the dividend. And sees if it's greater or less than half of that, in which case it adds one to the result. So it does a rounding division. And so it's just, you know, it's very convenient. So yeah, I've built up a macro library over time of all kinds of little tricks like that that I use in my code. And the other, the other thing that, that I think really puts people off of Assembler is very often you'll see somebody's code, which is just atrocious. It's, it's running down the left hand edge of the page. And it's just the stream of of acronyms and weird arguments. And you look at it and you think, what the hell is that? Just, you know, <laughs> no way can I read that. But but my code, I mean, I take some pride in the way it looks because I know eventually I'm gonna, probably going to have to come back and, right. and read it. And I'm so I'm expressing this to myself and to the computer at the same time. And as as good coders do, and the result is something which is you know really pleasant. It's not cryptic and and horrible. You know, I'm going to be. Um, I've kind of volunteered to teach to do a little programming tutorial for my uh, kids' high school because they don't do anything like that right now. Wow! And uh, I'm not a adept programmer, but I think I'm good enough to get them started. But I I just I was going to you know use Python, but I just had a thought. It might be a great idea to spend some weeks learning basic assembler because what a great way to learn how the computer works. Yeah. You, how, you're, you're working exactly. bare to the metal. And so it gives you an understanding of what registers are, uh, moves, loads, conditionals, you know, bits. All of these things are very, you know, conditionals, uh, you know, uh, conditional bits and stuff are very uh, useful to understand, I think, at a low level as you then move into higher level languages. You kind of know what's going on. I don't know if it could be Mac based, but remember that that little PDP eight emulator is a is a beautiful piece of work. There you the go Mac, on the Mac platform. Every kid in the high school has a Mac laptop. They uh, matriculate with a Mac laptop. It's perfect then because you know the, the PDP eight, being that it only has eight opcodes, very straightforward. Is a perfect yeah. little language to to begin to to like do little experiments with. And 
I have used that 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 PDP-8 emulator now on my Mac and written some code with it. It just works beautifully. I will be calling you. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll be calling you for some uh, some fatherly advice. I think this is going to be great. This is going to be so much fun. Start him with a PDP-8. That is a yep. great idea. Yep. It's just a junior, perfect little yeah. machine. And and you're able to single step. I mean, it does. It, it disassembles the code. It single steps. Oh, you perfect. can see the contents of all the registers. It's it's a visible computer, which is perfect for, for, for learning, you know, for giving you a sense for how they really work underneath. Oh, I'm so excited now. <laughs> Moving along. Question two. Marsh Wildman in Sacramento, California says, what do you mean when you say scripts exactly? Dear Stephen Leo, I constantly hear you warning about the security risks presented by scripts. What kind of scripts are we talking about here? This web form I'm entering in this message into, for instance, doesn't this run on a script? I'm looking for a form such as this or an order form. There are many options out there, Java, ASP, Perl, XML. What is the best choice for performance and to give me and my users the safety we rightly expect and increasingly need? Thanks for any help. Love the show. Spinrite is on my birthday wish list. I love that. Well, scripts. that's a really good point. You know, I'd, we've talked about scripts. I just sort of use it as a... I assume that it's it um, is a term that everybody understands, but but I think Marsh had a really good question. That is okay. What exactly is it that we talk about? The um, okay, so there's probably no really rigid formal definition, but in general, a script means that something is being interpreted. That is, it's it's like a like a batch file is you could say that that's a script because you you're not compiling that into an execu- into executable code the actual code that the machine runs instead an interpreter is reading the script step by step now again that definition even has a kind of a problem because you know the original basic language was an interpreted language so there was an interpreter interpreting it, but you really don't think of basic as a scripting language. Um, I mean, that's not the way it's been known. So, so scripting di- languages are typically um, when they're run. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this too. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're both gonna fail on a perfect definition. But when they're run, they're uh, often plain text, which then is run, as you say, and on the fly, uh, interpreted and executed. I'm thinking of JavaScript, Python, Perl. Sometimes, like Basic and Python, they have intermediate steps of pre-compiled code, but they're yep. still uh, interpreted in, in real time, as you say, uh, as opposed to something like C or Assembler, which is machine-translated, ultimately, the machine code, which is run then, uh, you can compile once, run forever. Right, and, and I guess the, 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 the problem is there's a gray area where... Something is you don't think of as a scripting language is interpreted. So it's not just the interpret the interpretedness of it that makes it a scripting language. But and, and so I, I don't think there really is a rigid, clear definition. But my the reason I'm upset with scripts is, or scripting is not the scriptingness itself. It's that, for example, in the case of JavaScript that JavaScript 
which is, by the way, a very nice language. I mean, it was it was developed by the guys at Netscape. It unfortunately really bears no connection to the Java language itself from Sun. I mean, they're not at all the same. Um, it, it's a, so that in that sense, it's sort of a poor choice of of naming terminology. But the Netscape guys well sort of wanted to pick up some of the glamour of the Java language, so they called their yeah, Java no relation at all. Right. The 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 what makes me uncomfortable is that browsers, web browsers, interpret JavaScript, and that means I mean, for, well, and for the purpose of executing code from a remote web server. So that just makes me really uncomfortable. That's the the, the classic Gibsonian reaction. Um, the idea that you're gonna you're gonna click on a link, you're going to receive a web page from some remote server who, you know, you don't have necessarily a trusting relationship right. with. And that that page is going to come into your browser. Your browser is going to parse the HTML, find scripting commands in there, and then run run code, which you've just received. The idea, I mean, that's fundamentally a bad idea. I mean, I recognize... That's, that's really what we're talking about then here is is client-side, browser-side programming, languages that run on the browser side. Except that active server pages, ASP, you know, that's a scripting language that is server-side. So you can also, or or Perl, you could say Perl is, you know, I mean, in fact, Marsh listed Perl uh, among his choices. Perl is... That runs on the server as Very a CGI often. script, as opposed, it doesn't. Right. You know, the browser doesn't know Perl. Right. So mostly, it means something. Uh, you know, in general, it means that uh, that interpretation is going on. And I would say maybe the right description is to say that you know, scripting is used in web processes. You know, you're yeah. scripting on the client, you're scripting on the server. But generally, server-side stuff doesn't seem to be anywhere near as dangerous. For one thing, it doesn't have access to the contents of your machine. Although you also have, for example, Unit, Unix shell scripts, and there's scripting. But they're only not... dangerous when they run on the hardware that, that's being compromised, right? Correct. I mean, that's and that's and the I'm, issue, I'm just I think. Sort of, I was sort of like trying to say, well, so, so it's not just web things that right. are scripting it's right. you know it's interpreted mostly i think i would say scripts are interpreted and and but the risky issue is the stuff that is running on your computer that you are receiving from a website and that that, that the website's getting to run on your hardware that's yes. the problem that's why i <clears throat> exactly that that that's the, the the source of my continual concern about scripting is it's fundamentally very powerful. I mean, all of the Web 2.0 stuff, you know, a- any any online forums which are accepting content and, you know, the, the state of the art fancy stuff, you know, Facebook and MySpace and, and these this next generation technology, it relies on you well, or and all the Google stuff. You know, Gmail is a perfect example. Right. Google Mail and, and calendaring, yeah. all of that. Yeah. that that's all based on scripting. It, it's it's arguably doable, not with scripting. So, for example, Marsh said, hey, this form at GRC, he's, he, he's at grc.com slash feedback, you know, is this scripting? No, because it's from me. Intentionally, you, know? you wrote it, although almost everybody else uses a script. You wrote it without script. 
Yes. It's just using HTML. HTML. It's uh, in assembly language, Leo. Yeah. It's in running running on your side. On the server side, exactly. So it's just just it's a naked form which you submit, and then I take the form and do it all over on my side. It's not unusual for people who have forms on their website to have some JavaScript around it, validating input, things like that. Right. Or, in fact, sometimes the actual email engine itself is on the page, and that's been used and exploited in the past. People could could change the the um, the. Uh, uh, the addresses that the script was using right. and and essentially use it as a remailer back in the early spam days right so you know the 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 exploits of scripting are legend and i mean and not surprisingly from my standpoint <laughs> because it's code right. you know it's, it's you're accepting code from somewhere else and you're running it on your machine that's you, the you real know, that's the fundamental issue it's, and, and it could be all, Java, which is not a script, by the way. We just talked about a Java exploit on the Mac that you or, wouldn't call that scripting. Or my the, my even bigger nemesis is ActiveX controls, right. where that's code you know that that you've just accepted and your browser is run. Microsoft is getting smart finally, and the browser says, "Hey, something's trying to run ActiveX. Do you trust where it is that you've gone?" And as we mentioned last week, Windows Seven is going to get better about telling you more about this thing that's trying to run so that you're able to make a more informed decision. Yeah, I mean, I think really we shouldn't probably use the word scripting because that's not the issue. Uh, really, the issue is a so website code putting somewhere else. code from somewhere else running on your machine. That's almost right. always where these, these security issues come in. Right. Because it has to run on, you know, I can write a Perl script that runs on my server. It's hard, it almost, nay, virtually impossible for it to corrupt your machine without it getting some code on your machine that you run. Right. Because and Exactly. And on the server side, you're able to provide the same benefit. I, I would argue that every most of what is being done client-side can be done server-side. It's hmm. not as sexy. It's not as interactive. It's not as fast. So, you know, there are... But it's know, safer. Um, it's way safe. Yeah. Yes. So, and that's why you say use something like NoScript, which turns off JavaScript, because that's one of the common... Uh, venues. Uh, yes, I love vectors. the idea. I love the idea of of giving the user the choice, so that it, their their browser is not just running any code that ha- it happens to stumble over. Yeah. But when you get to somewhere that you care about, it's like, oh, look, this this fill in the address form <laughs> doesn't seem to be working correct. Then you turn on scripting right now for that. And then, oh, look, now it knows, you know, what state my zip code is in and the other fancy things that, that scripting are, are able to do for you. We got As long as we're doing definitions, let's do another one. Okay. Uh, Victor in Pretoria, South Africa writes, he says he's been listening and wonders what a socket is. Hi, Steve. Since you've been discussing network technologies recently, I thought it might be a good idea to discuss sockets. We use the term all the time. Uh, but I don't actually know what they are and what they do. What's a socket? Well, uh, the the term, as far as I know, originated with um, at Berkeley with their their implementation, their first implementation on Unix of of internet style networking. Um, the idea is it's it's an abstraction to mean a an endpoint of communication, and also sort of to 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 mean what your program talks to when you want to communicate across the network. Um, I, I, perhaps a more common or, or, or familiar sort of related 
name is is a handle. The idea, for example, um, in programming, you create a you you call the operating system and say, "I want to create a file," and from that you get back this handle, and you then write to that handle, sort of as an abstraction for the file, and you're actually writing to the file that you created using the handle sort of as your token. Well, a, a socket is is very similar, but in networking parlance. So you you create a socket, and then you may you may give it an address on your machine, which is sort of like creating, um, you know, like, like naming it. You may then connect this socket to a socket on a remote machine, and then as you write to your socket, it is possible to read from the remote socket. So sockets are, are maybe connected in that sense. They don't have to be connected. There are so-called connectionless sockets. But, but sort of um, at, from, from, a, from a definitional standpoint, it is the, it, it's the way programmers think about the way they, they talk to each other over the Internet in um, first in Unix, and then Microsoft adopted the sockets interface and model, modified it a little bit, of course, because they can't leave anything alone ever. Um, and so there's not really compatible with, with, with the Berkeley standard sockets model. Um, later, they've made them more compatible. But so that's, that, 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 that's what it is. And when we talk about sockets, we're talking about sort of a, the, the programming interface and also that is from the programmer side and also the communications endpoint from the networking side. So, for example, in the Internet case, a socket would have an IP address and a port number. And together, that IP address and a port represent a unique reception point or transmission point in an operating system for it to communicate to the outside world. I've, I've struggled with this myself because I get asked it on the radio show. Really? You have listeners that are... What's a socket? Wow. Or You know, what I get is a lot is what's a port? Yes. So a socket's not a port. Um, but they no. have kind of the same functionality in a way, right? Um, the, 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 I would say that the difference is a port is... is um, when I think about it, I know exactly what a port is. A, a port is a number from 1 to 65535 um, that, that port-based protocols carry. I know that didn't make it much simpler. But, for example, um, you know, uh, the IP protocol has IP addresses but no ports. You need to then layer on top of that the TCP protocol or UDP where they they have they bring this notion of a port so that the packets that are that are UDP or TCP format say I am I was sent from this port and I'm going to that port and so the 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 beauty of that is you can have services listening for inbound packets with a certain carrying a certain port number so really the only thing that is is just a number it's carrying a port number but when it arrives at the op, at the at the server running an operating system the server says oh this is aimed 
at port 80. It's coming in to port 80, which means I'm going to give it to that process, the web server process running inside me. If it's coming in to port 110, oh, that's the POP3 protocol port. So I'm going to give it to the email service running in there. So really, you could think of ports as like a as like a uh, the the final switching stage in a like in a, in a switchyard where when the packets come in, it tells the operating system which of the various servers that those should be routed to in a, at a single IP address. That is, you know, in a single server. So really, a port and a socket aren't the same thing at all. Right. The, the socket is more of the programming abstraction. Right. The way programmers see the internet, ports are over. Ports are 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 an abstraction that lives on on the packet side. The way the packets get routed um, once they arrive at the proper IP. But they both have to do with communication. Yep, and they make the world go round. <laughs> Sockets make the world go round. Let's remember that. Could be a good song. All right, long one here from Sean Polson, Middletown, Delaware, uh, about SSL. Hi, Steve. Another fine Security Now podcast with a deep dive into a big technology we could all understand, or we should all understand. He's talking about SSL. Well done. I wanted to write in to comment about a remark made near the end of that podcast. You and Leo were suggesting that with the power of computing these days, SSL doesn't represent much overhead. So why not use it for everything and continuously offer more security? Let me point out a couple of cons that were not discussed. And if you like, use them, because uh, if you think I'm on to something, first of all, the cons. Web browsers don't cache content over HTTPS. It turns off caching. So that means they have to download every image, HTML, JavaScript, every single time. Of course, browsers these days cache a lot. That speeds up browsing considerably. Of course, you shouldn't secure cache the secure content or it wouldn't be secure. Uh, in addition, caching proxies won't cache this content either. ISPs often employ transparent caching proxy devices that save their upstream bandwidth to the net by caching what their users often access, like, say, the Google search page logo. So when you go to a Google page, you're probably getting that logo not from Google, but from your ISP. So it's important to know what content is truly public and safe to disseminate to anyone listening in, and which is confidential in any way. I don't think it's ideal to blanket all web content as suitable for HTTPS. To that regard, your CryptoLink package might be a good solution. I've often griped to myself how insecure it is to fire up my laptop at a local internet cafe. Anyone could listen in on all my doings from a distance. That's why you would use a VPN. He makes a good point. It just would be inefficient. It's not that the, the computer can't decrypt it. It's just the waste of bandwidth. Yeah, and, and I mean, so yes, I, I, I wanted to, to, uh, to share Sean's notion because he's absolutely right that web browsers are are prevented from caching secure content which is what you normally want i i have seen the option in the in the configuration dialog sometimes that that gives browsers permission to cache secure content you probably don't want to do that because you want to know that those pages which you are looking at you know just you having logged on to your banking site for example and and where all of those pages are are wrapped in in the security of that communication you want to know that when you close the browser window that stuff was never written to the disk it it isn't in you know it's not sitting there um uh able to be you know scrounged around by anybody else using your machine or any malware that that, that may be on there so so it is the case that the browsers are smart about that in the case of ssl 
Um, and he mentions caching proxies and how using a secure connection will bypass your ISP's proxy. Um, that's, for example, what I do when people are, are entering the Shields Up site. Um, uh, many users are behind ISP proxies, so non-secure connections are going through the ISP's proxy to the remote server. So if, if I didn't ask for a secure connection when you were using Shields Up, I would see your IP as the ISP's proxy. And that that's that, not right. Yeah. You know, that's not I don't want you you don't want me testing the proxy. You want me testing right. with Shields Up your machine. Right. So so the the entry point to Shields Up gets a secure connection so that specifically to avoid intermediate proxies. So both of those things are the case. Um where where what we were talking about differs from these examples that Sean was suggesting was more my sense that all connections should be secure. Yes. Not not necessarily that the content that is being exchanged is always needs to be secret. And so I would I would differentiate the secretness of the content from the security of the connection. So for example, email connections should be secure even if you know it's just your random old email when it gets there something where you're not you're not concerned about the security on arrival as arguably you are if for example you're doing banking and you want your banking pages not to be written to the hard drive so you know this sort of this confusion is a function of all of this still just being immature technology this sort of came upon us half baked and half you know thought out and we're all using it and making the best of it um i can i how often have i said someday it's going to be better you know we're going to be <laughs> marching day. we're going to be marching slowly toward that day for quite a while um hopefully doing podcasts uh, all the while and we will have a celebration when it's better so it's really not https that i was that i was referring to it's this notion that Setting up SSL connections are easy and inexpensive right. with, with today's technology. So given all of the, I mean, all of the problems with insecure um, um, locations where you can be doing things like in open Wi-Fi hotspots, it'd be really nice if our protocols were just secure by default and then had this extra layer of, oh, Yes, obviously it's secure, but also please don't cache it because this is right. sensitive and, you know, it's sensitive content carried in a secure connection. Be I, nice if everything were carried in a secure connection. I blame myself. I think I was the one who's saying, well, why don't we just use HTTPS all the time for every page? Ah, okay. And there's a reason why not. Right. Because it's certainly the case that caching really gives us a tremendous performance boost. Yeah. But boy, have you noticed how big... How much space on a hard drive <laughs> web browser caches yeah. start eating up? Hundreds oh, and hundreds of megabytes, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if you empty your cache, sometimes that takes half an hour just to delete all that crap. I mean, all... <laughs> but, me. but to be honest, I mean, uh, hard drives are big now, and it's not... I mean, even if you have a gigabyte of yep. a cache, that's still, a, you know, a small percentage of your total hard drive space. Yes, yeah, We're just old timers, and we go, oh... 100 megabytes for your cache. That's outrageous. But there's plenty of space. Although you do really wonder how much of that is getting reused. 
Yeah, that's true too. It's catching everything that you're never going to be, you know, seeing again. Well, and that raises another issue, which is you should know if you're not on a secure page that frequently content that you're looking at is saved. Yep. And uh, that's how people can get in trouble sometimes. Often, in fact. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Simon Ironmonger of the name in England wonders about processor security flaws. We don't talk about that much. Never have. Hi, Steve Leo. I know there's a all manner of interpretation going on in modern processors, creating microcode, predicting the flow of the program in advance, um, all manner of optimizations. In one form or another, this is using a relatively fixed logic in order to interpret a user-supplied program. Yeah, it's a von Neumann machine. So why do we not hear such things as a flaw in the AMD64 microcode allows malformed SSE2 instructions to bypass ring privileges? <laughs> Why why do we not hear of flaw in Intel Atom cache row buffer allows unprivileged process to read unca- read cached kernel memory? Just what's going on? I don't believe processors don't have bugs. Clearly, they could present security issues. Is this security by obscurity? Is the nature of the hardware logic engineering more secure by design? Do those elite teams of CPU designers simply not resemble typical application developers? Your comments are welcome. I think this would be an interesting discussion topic. Thanks for the great show. And it is a good com- uh, It's a question. really great question. And I found myself having to, you know, pausing this morning at Starbucks as I was going through the mailbag, assembling these, thinking, okay, that's a good question. Um, there have been flaws in processors, in, like in processor microcode. There was a famous, remember the Pentium divide uh, flaw where... I remember seeing it in uh, demonstrated back in the That's exactly Lotus. what I was going to bring up, yeah. Yep, in the Lotus 1, 2, 3 days, you could put some specific data into the spreadsheet, and the, you know, the spreadsheet would give you the wrong answer, which was a consequence of there being a, a, a bizarre little subtle bug in, you know, that affected specific cases of a division instruction. And it's conceivable... That you that that could that kind of thing could be leveraged into um, a like in, into a public exploit, um, but I think the best way to explain why we don't see this so much is that it, that the model for a processor is very much like the model that we were discussing recently of code for the shuttle. You know the 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 NASA shuttle, where it absolutely, or or even the rovers on Mars, that that absolutely has to be right. I mean, it has to be right to a much greater degree of has to than <laughs> than regular consumer software, where they go, oh, sorry, here's an update, download this. I mean, this is a processor where. Where, for example, in the case of Intel or AMD, they can afford to spend huge amounts of man centuries making sure this is right because they're then going to encapsulate it in a chip and start spitting out millions of these things. It has to be right. It's high profit. It's also high damage if they mess this up. And they've got very sophisticated tools for making sure that as they've gone from one generation of x86 to the next, that this thing still executes similarly. That is, you you have to know 
that they've got test suites of code that they run on a new design, you know, in, um, you know, emulating the, the next generation chipset, um, really. And, and initially it's failing. There's things they missed. And it's not until all of this so-called regression analysis passes that they let it out the door. Now, we know that Microsoft does something similar, but we've we've seen that Microsoft, for example, just to, to choose someone, doesn't catch everything because the guys down at EI Security uh, in Southern California, they have found many Microsoft faults by doing what Microsoft should have done. They've got a lab full of machines running Windows, and they're just throwing junk at them. They're like all kinds of wacky packets and all kinds of junk. They're keeping a trace of everything that they do, and every so often, they crash a machine. Well, we know that crashing a machine is the first stage in exploiting a machine. So when one of these machines crashes because some random junk packets were thrown at it, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. What exactly did we throw at this machine that caused it to die? Then they they back up and they they, they they go forward. So chips are done in the same fashion. I just think the reason we don't have problems like like we see so commonly with software is I mean is not so much differing levels of complexity because exactly as Simon suggests, modern contemporary processors are phenomenally phenomenally complex with the um, out of order execution and, and instruction renaming and, and flow prediction. I mean, it's um, I've I've been reading in the last few months, of sort of studying processor design a little bit, and it just makes your head spin how complex these things are. But they're they're correct because they can afford to make them correct, and the the cost of a mistake was is was is, would be so phenomenal that they just can't afford to make the mistake. So yeah, yeah. a lot of time and money goes into making sure that when we get the chip, it works exactly as the spec says. That floating point error uh, was very billions, I would imagine, it cost Intel. I mean, oh. huge. Yep. And here we are talking about it today. I mean, it didn't, it isn't even dead yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you they learned their lesson. Yeah. It's really an interesting question, though. Well, I'm surprised we don't hear more. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's a function of having, you know, re- the right tools and the right methodology and understanding we can't this one. We can't mess up. It's also simpler. I mean, it's not as big. a. It's not Windows. There's not. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, how much microcode is there? It's not a huge amount. Um, it, it, it's I, I'm I'm reluctant to say that it's much simpler because I've looked at what's involved now with a contemporary processor. And I mean, and it's just mind boggling. Yeah, right. It's just mind boggling what's going on. So in props there. then to these guys at AMD yeah. and Intel and all the other chip manufacturers who do this such a good yeah. job of this. They're, they're right because it has to be. I like that. Just like the shuttle code. It's kind of neat. It's neat when you, when you, when you see somebody doing a job above and beyond. Yeah. Doing so such excellence. Uh, talking again about JavaScript, we had a bunch of questions and comments about that. Matthew Srebinski of Essexville, Michigan, is getting warnings. Warning, warning. This may be one of the most uh, 
common questions I get on the radio show. If, if it's the question, I think it is. Steve, I just listened to Security Now, uh, your netcast on SSL and TLS 195. As soon as you mentioned the latest Acrobat reader problem, I disabled JavaScript on several of my work and home computers. The first PDF I opened after that gave me an error. It said, this contains JavaScript. But I had JavaScript disabled. Since you said you'd never encountered a PDF with JavaScript in it, I thought you might want to know about it. The file was a topographical map downloaded from the U.S. Geological Survey. I'm not certain what they use JavaScript to do, but it's interesting to know that somebody other than Black Hats is using it. I'm an avid Security Now listener, and I own a copy of Spinrite, which has fixed several problems for me. Keep up the good work and let us know how well the Kindle DX works as a PDF reader. Also, Eric in San Jose, he's getting false JavaScript warning messages. He says, I disabled JavaScript in Adobe Acrobat Professional 8 as instructed. However, now when I receive and open attachments from my coworkers, I get two, count them, two pop-up messages to click through that say, this document contains JavaScript. Do you want to enable JavaScripts from now on? This document may not behave correctly if they're disabled. So I clicked no twice and moved on. The file did behave themselves. The PDFs I received were created using the print to PDF feature in Acrobat 5 or 7. I don't know why they could trade to contain JavaScript. Okay, and this, these questions are representative of a bunch that I've received. Um, the problem is that, and this is just, you know, uh, laziness, frankly, on Adobe's part. They're not used to running with JavaScript disabled. And they get mad. So, yes, so it doesn't, so the reader doesn't behave itself very well. There may be some, some lazy tag in the PDF that says it may have JavaScript, but it doesn't actually. And so that causes the, the pop-up. I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, and, you know, it would, it would take days to weed, the, weed into this and wade into it and look at the actual raw PDF code to determine what's going on. What I do know is that these are false positives. It's that, you know, they only occur because... Adobe hasn't taken the time to prevent them from occurring because Adobe has JavaScript turned on all the time, as do all Acrobat and Reader users, except those who listen to this podcast and who understand that, okay, whoops, we've got an unpatched vulnerability. Let's turn off JavaScript. So, you know, there, um, we, as I mentioned before, there are definitely PDFs that use and depend upon JavaScript. And I had, uh, I had said that I ran across one myself at the State of California website. They had something for, you know, the, the, it was a PDF form that sort of filled itself in and helped you um, when you were applying for permanent ma- uh, mail-in balloting status. Um, and you really did have to have JavaScript turned on. On the other hand, it was obvious that you did. But static documents like these guys are talking about don't have to have it. You can say no, and everything works just fine. So, you know, maybe the commenting, you know, you're able in um, Acrobat to, um, to like, add annotations and things. Maybe that uses scripting. But if you're just printing to a PDF, chances are there's no scripting, and you just don't need it. Even if this thing says, oh, wait, you know, you got scripting turned off. It's like, yes, I know. Thank you for confirming that. So I'm going to read this without any hmm. scripting and be just fine. Hmm. Humph. Harumph. <laughs> Question seven. William, listening in Canada, is uh, interested in the XP mode that Microsoft has announced in Windows 7. Hi, guys. Is XP mode in Windows 7 properly sandboxing Windows XP? This is a particular concern if XP mode can be used 
as a vector of attack on Windows 7 systems, or if malware gets into the XP virtual system. The reason this may be a concern is because of the integration technology that is included with XP mode, where XP applications are able to be on the same desktop as Windows 7 applications. They're using virtual PC for this, if that yeah, helps. Yeah, and I I wanted to post this question to sort of put this on the map because we've received it a number of times. People want to know if this is the same as, you know, for example, a VMware style, a, a, a VMware style enclosure. Right. And I don't know. Um, I'm reluctant to look at it too much until Windows 7 gets like to 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 release candidate. I, mean, I know we're at release candidate. I meant, you know, RTM, uh, release to manufacturing stage. My concern is that I'd be surprised if it was sandboxing properly. That is, that would be too inconvenient for most users. Right. They would expect things running in Windows 7's XP mode to have access to the hard drive, to be able to see, you know, their documents and the normal things that they see outside of the virtual machine. I don't know either way, but I just wanted to to share the question and to let our listeners know I will f- we we will find out exactly what's going on with that because it's going to be an important feature of Windows 7. I'm skeptical though about its use as as full security sandboxing only because doing that really does circumscribe the environment for the user. So Microsoft may have done default things like made the whole external hard drive external to the VM available in a transparent fashion. I wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft had done that, which would completely zero it from a from a standpoint of security uh, and use as a sandbox. Hmm. Here's a really interesting one. This is from uh, Rick Slater in Carrier or Carrier Mississippi. I'm thinking MS is Mississippi. He's worried about Slashdot's article about the uh, Kindle DX's kill bits. Um, In fact, I'll put a link to the article uh, in the show notes so you can see it. Um, You can see that the new Kindle DX has a number of kill flags. But built into the hardware, which allow Amazon to reduce its functionality when they want to. This was disturbing enough. In fact, so much so I canceled the order that I'd placed for the new DX, pending the time that this whole thing gets sorted out. I'd be interested in hearing how your what your take is on the subject during the next Security Now netcast. Thanks for the great show. I haven't missed one since the beginning. Killbits. Well, first of all, it's not plural. From killbit, it's it's killbit, and this is addressing the concern that either we've talked about Leo or I've heard you talk about. That is the audio reader. Oh, this is the text-to-speech stuff. Yes. Um, so apparently there are some random house texts which have de- have required of Amazon that they not be read-out-loudable right. on the Kindle. Right. And so all that this is, this whole Slashdot story, is people go spinning off sideways, as they all so often do on Slashdot, you know, and, and exaggerating what's going on. We don't know that there aren't other kill bits, but there don't have to be. There's only one that this whole issue is about, and that's a single bit which says, don't allow this particular title to be read out loud. Amazon designed that into the original, in, in, into the original specification for their content when they added the text-to-speech. They thought, well, maybe there'll be some situations that come up where this book should not be read out loudable and 
we've now run across some. So that's what this is. Yeah, it's just it's an incendiary term, kill bits. I think people get upset just because it's called a kill bit. Well, and, and you know, there was, there was some guy who did post on Slashdot who said, this thing bit me. There are some books that I purchased, right. which I wanted to you know, read. I, I wanted to hear. I, I bought them so that they could be read to me, right. and they won't. And he's like, you know, and he's grumbling about. I'm sure Amazon won't take them back. And I'm thinking, no, I'll bet they would. I'll bet you could say, hey, this doesn't work for me. Remove these from my from my bookshelf, and you know, cancel them. Uh, I mean, I just bet you could get cooperation. <laughs> so I think it's a little tempest in a teapot. Myself. This next but, one. But be be aware that not all books can be read to you. Yeah. This next one comes from a friend of mine, Steve Vance, who's uh, with the Golden Gate Computer Society in San Rafael, California. He's a great guy. I see him every year when I speak to the club there. He wants to know uh, about how to detect SSL proxying. Hi, Steve. You've mentioned that if I'm using a company computer and they've installed a certificate on it, they can decode my HTTPS packets, look at yeah. them, then re-encrypt them and send them on. Kind of a man in the middle almost. All right. So I want to go to my bank's website on my lunch hour, but I don't want anyone in my company to watch me do this. Is there some way to tell if they've installed this certificate and are doing it? It looks like my bank's website. The address bar is green and everything. If my company were doing this, would it somehow be obvious? How would I go about trying to detect if they're doing it for extra credit? If they're doing this kind of proxying, is there any way I can thwart this? Would CryptoLink solve this problem? Okay. Um, that's a great question. And again, my discussion of this a couple of weeks ago caused a whole bunch of concern, uh, like very much like, like, like Steve's, um, on the issue. Um, what you can do is pretty simple. Um, um, if you, for example, went to any secure site and... Since, since I know my certificate, you could go to the page I was mentioning um, earlier, the, the Shields Up page. So you just go grc.com and then choose Shields Up from the main menu and go no further. That'll take you to sort of the entry page where we're saying, hi, you know, uh, click this button to proceed, um, but stay there. You'll see then that you've got the padlock showing that you're on a secure page. You look in the address bar, it's HTTPS. I have not yet bellied up to the bar and purchased an EV, an extended validation certificate. I'm considering that when, when I next renew my certs, because it would be a nice thing for GRC to have, to also have the green. I think that's, you know, be a good value for my money, although it is a lot of money. Um, so then you, you can you, if you if you hover in, at least in Firefox, hover your mouse over the little padlock. It'll it'll you'll, you'll see something that says VeriSign Trust Network. You can also double click on that to open up the properties. What you want to do is you want to to poke around in in there. Various browsers have these in different places, but you want to look at the, the so-called chain of trust that we've talked about. The the sort of a a hierarchy of of links for the certificate. And in, in, in the case of GRC's certificate, which I get from VeriSign, you'll see grc.com, you'll see a VeriSign intermediate, and then that trusted route, the certificate authority, and nothing else. That's the key. Uh. If, if you did this in a corporate, within a corporate 
region where they were they were proxying your, your SSL, you would see that you had a secure connection. But when you looked at the certificate, it would show, for example, grc.com and then linked to some non-trusted um, uh, certificate authority that had been planted in your browser and the, and the, and that had been used to generate a certificate on the fly. It would not link back to the the real so the real certificate from GRC. So so to be sure, you could go to any website. It doesn't have to be GRC, but you know mine's always going to be there and do it from within a corporation, see what that chain looks like. You can probably tell for sure just there. But if you went outside that corporate environment, for example, you went home and did the same thing, you should have exactly the same chain no matter how or where you connect to the secure website like that page at GRC. So if they're different, then you know for sure that some funny business is going on. <laughs> Excellent. Simple enough. Yep. Just check. Um, and by the way, would CryptoLink help with this? Yes, right? Because then uh, you have a, a tunnel, and they can't break through the tunnel at the work. At the work. Yes. Now, okay, uh, good point. I, I forgot that last part of his question. Um, the CryptoLink will excel at getting out um, of pretty much anywhere. For example, you'll be able to use a, a connection to port 110, which is the POP3 port, for example, uh, and 80 and 443 and 25, which is probably going to be blocked anyway. But I mean, in fact, the way CryptoLink will work is it will it will spray simultaneously a whole bunch of SYN packets out towards different destination ports um, in order to opportunistically find an opening out in order to, 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 to reach the server that, you, that you're connecting to, which will be looking at um, – actually, CryptoLink has the ability to look at all ports, all there are, all 65535, because – the packets are self-authenticating, so it's able to detect incoming packets that are from its matching client. So, again, I'm designing this so that it just works, no matter what situation you're in. But it's still conceivable that a corporation could have its border so locked down that nothing that's not proxied can get out, in which case nothing can get out. I mean, I would be surprised if that were the case, but it's conceivable. You know, I mean, uh, CryptoLink will be able to use both UDP and TCP, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if there's a way to get out, I'm going to get out. But it's conceivable that if they're proxying port 80 and proxying port 443 for, for HTTP and HTTPS, and like nothing else is allowed, then you would know, for example, you couldn't be getting pop mail. You couldn't be getting email from from some other ISP, for example. That would mean that port one ten was open, in which case CryptoLink would go aha and it would you know find a way out. Um, it's conceivable that a, that, a, that a corporate um, network could be so locked down that nothing but web surfing works, and all of that is proxied, in which case nothing would be able to get out of there. But Seems unlikely, I, you know. I hope that uh, um, uh, that Steve will, uh, if he's in such an environment, 
uh, let me know while we're beta testing CryptoLink if it's able to get out because it'd be fun to know. Yep. Renger Jiang in Auckland, New Zealand wants to verify the security of a portable router solution. Hi, Steve. I like the idea you mentioned in episode 196, uh, carrying around the, uh, you know, the portable uh, router like Analog X does uh, and using it as a hardware firewall when I connect to someone else's LAN, say at a hotel that protects against other machines on the LAN. I'd like to be cautious and extra secure by testing this setup first. However, I'm not aware of anything remotely similar to Shields Up that I can run from another machine on the LAN to confirm that there aren't any ports left open by my portable router. I asked the question because Shields Up, correct me if I'm wrong, would only scan for open ports on the uh, initial router connected to the internet, not that router in between. Any suggestions? I have a great suggestion, um, and that's a great question. We've never talked about um, local port scanning. I don't think we've ever talked about it. Um, there's a, a neat security company a little bit south of me called Foundstone. Um, they were independent for a long time. I think they were purchased by McAfee, but I'm not sure. But they're continuing to operate independently. And, uh, in fact, one of their guys um, uh, hangs out in the news groups, um, and he's an author of, of security-related software. Foundstone has a little free, nice, very well-designed, standalone Windows-based scanner called SuperScan. So if you just put into um, uh, Google Foundstone, F-O-U-N-D-S-T-O-N-E space SuperScan, um, it's the first link that comes up, You and it's free. You can download it. They don't ask you any questions. You have to, uh, you know, agree to their little license agreement. But you don't. They're not asking for an email address and your name and your, you know, all this other nonsense. That sometimes it's not quite as free as it seems. Um, it's nice and small. It's like a hundred and some k in size. Um, I think that Robin Keir may have have be its author. Um, I know that it. They caution a little bit that some functionality was lost when Windows removed raw sockets. Oops. Um, I mean, that's the consequence of the the removing raw sockets to tighten up the security and prevent abuse of that technology. But they're still able to um, to perform a lot of scans. It's got unrestricted IP ranges. It's, it, there's a whole bunch of features in it. So, and I I heartily recommend SuperScan from Foundstone. It's it's at version four, which requires um, an a Windows 2000 or NT or later machine. They do still leave version 3 available because it would work on even earlier machines, 95, 98, and ME, if anyone is, is still using those. And so the idea would be that um, that Ren would set up his his travel router and, hit, and then a, a machine behind it, and then from another machine on the same LAN would, would use SuperScan to scan all the ports on that IP. And he's right that, you know, using Shields Up, Shields Up being out on the Internet, its whole intention is to be an Internet-facing security test. But in this case, he specifically wants a LAN-based security test, so like, you know, an intra-LAN test, and SuperScan will do that for you. And I recommend it without hesitation. Cool. SuperScan. And and, uh, is it free? Yeah. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, they have a whole bunch of great free security tools there at Foundstone. I have to make a point of writing that one down. Darius in Port Moody, B.C. wonders about 
multi-site version control. Hi, Steve. I've been listening to you and uh, Leo for the past couple of years. I've been listening to Security Now since episode 99. You often talk about the code that you write for your various projects. It sounds as though you use different computers to work on these projects, depending on whether you're at GRC HQ or Starbucks. <laughs> I was wondering what your solution is for secure source control. How do you keep your source code safe and well-protected on the move? Do you use SVN or some sort of versioning tool? You know, I don't. Um, I I found a, a great Windows utility. It's not free um, and not even particularly inexpensive. Um, and I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, I was just looking at it for it in, in my tray because I always have it running down there. Um, you um, use Brief? What do you use as your editor? I use Brief. Br- brief is my editor, but um, I and I and I use Jungle Disk and Amazon S3 as my as my repository. Oh, interesting. So it's not just um, a backup for you. That's where you keep updated code. Okay, I got I remembered it's Fileback PC. Fileback, okay. Fileback PC is a is a phenomenally powerful general purpose backup utility. Um and it does versioning. So for example, in in the configuration dialog, you're able to say I want uh, to keep a maximum of 20 copies of of my source code, I want no two to be closer together in time than an hour, no more than seven in a day, and no and I mean you're able to granularly specify exactly how you want this thing to operate. And what I love about it is I'm also able to say, okay, I don't want any .err or .map or .exe, you know, you're able to give it like a, a long chain of like file file pattern descriptions of whether you do want it or don't want it to 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 back those up. And so what I have is essentially, you know, answering Darius's question is by sort of gluing together a couple solutions. Amazon S3 is amazingly inexpensive. Jungle Disk is a one-time cost of I think it's nineteen dollars, uh, and Fileback PC allows me to to be working at Starbucks, to be to be saving the code. It's being it's transparently all copied to Amazon. Uh, it's completely secure because we know that Fileback we know that um, Jungle Disk does encryption at, on the client so that nothing that's ever at Amazon can be decrypted. I mean, I'm not trusting my source code to anyone. And so the, you know, and I trust this, this setup because it is bulletproof. And then when I'm back home, um, everything that I was doing at Starbucks has been, has been kept um, with, with multiple versions. And boy, I tell you that does come in handy because there've been times when I've sort of gone off on a, on a tangent and and deleted a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't think I was going to need anymore. And it's like, oh shoot, I wish I had that. Well, you know, I still do. I'm able to, to to reach back in time and grab a grab a file that still had something that I got rid of prematurely, uh, or or grab some some snippets of code. So it ends up working really well. And uh, I just like the transparency of it. And of course, Fileback PC is a general purpose file backup solution. So I'm using it, for example, to spool content 
among many of my sh- uh, of, of of my systems as I'm doing work. It's able to be you, you can configure a huge list of different sort of tasks. And for example, every time I hit the Hibernate button, I see it briefly pop up and shoot things off to Amazon because it senses that you're going to sleep, you're hibernating, you're 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 shutting down, and it does a light, you know, like pre um, end of session work. And hmm. you, all of this is is really configurable with a lot of granularity. It's a very mature tool, so that's what I use, and I love it. We're gonna have to get you on Git one of these days. <laughs> That's a little more modern, but if if it works for you, you know you're still using assembly after all. I'm still using a DOS box <laughs> and, a, and a DOS editor, 16 bit editor. That yeah, that's run, right. That I don't know if Git, I don't know if you could run Git in uh, in DOS. To be honest with you, that's actually a very interesting question. You might have to, you might have to stick with Fileback. I'm not worried about it, Liam. <laughs> David Greenberg in Nyack, New York, has our last question of the day. He's got his travel router tip of the week is what he's got. Steve, I'm an avid fan of security now. And I've been uh, since day one. In your most recent show, you discussed a D-Link portable router as a neat solution for protection against malicious traffic from other machines on the same LAN. I'm actually using my Apple Airport Express to do the same thing. You put it in your pocket. You can plug it in anywhere. Use it in the hotel. Oh, look, he says, without any affiliation with Apple specifically, I also want to recommend their Airport Express travel router. It has this, you know, because I was going to go out and buy the D-Link, and I went, (laughs) I've got like two Airport Expresses that I'm not using. He says it has a similar wall wart form factor, complete with swing-out prongs, and can be configured to serve Wi-Fi after being connected to a wired Ethernet connection. However, it can also be used to attach to an existing Wi-Fi AP as a client. In which case, it may be used in several interesting modes. In one mode, it could be used to extend the range of an existing Wi-Fi network. I, that's what I used to do with my Airport Extreme and my Airport Express. I used it in WDS mode. Um, in another mode, it's a built-in USB port can be used to attach a printer, creating a print server. Finally, the unit has a built-in D2A converter and a one 8 inch stereo audio jack and receives streaming audio directly from iTunes or via a third-party program called Airfoil from Rogue Amoeba. Any other audio generating piece of software. In my case, I use it to stream music from my desktop and laptop PCs to my living room stereo. Then when I travel, I reconfigure it as a Wi-Fi AP, take it with me for that purpose. I guess you could take speakers too. (laughs) It's really quite a versatile device with one drawback. Rather than running a web server for easy configuration, you have to run a specific Apple utility on your machine to connect with and configure the unit. And that's why it's not so hot for a Windows user. Uh, Just what I was going to ask you was if if there was a Windows solution. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh. Thanks for such a high-quality program and for occasionally sharing the details of your own personal background and interests. We have several interests in common, and I'm sure we'd have a lot to talk about if we ever met someday. Let me tell you, having a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon with Steve Gibson is always a pleasure. I can speak from personal experience. I miss those, Leo. We're due for that. I know. We haven't had that in ages. I'll have to get up to, to, to your neck of the woods. Please do. We have. I have a bottle of Cab just waiting for you. Um, I, I, anyway, I wanted to share David's uh, posting. I know we have Mac listeners, and you know this little Airport Express sounds like a, a spectacular little unit. Yeah, yeah, I love the idea that it, that it, you know, it's, it's little fangs swing out, and you plug it directly into the wall to get power. So it's so in that way, it's like the D-Link that, that it's got it built in, and that I think it's very cool too. That if you're in a hotel, you can plug it into the hotel's wired network, and, and which is exactly what Mark. Uh, Thompson does when he brings his little D-Link w- with him here is then 
you know, it's your wireless access point, uh, secure, I'm sure, with, with, with WPA. So it's a, it's a router protecting you, as we were talking about, and then, then you're able to, you know, have your, use your laptop anywhere in the hotel room without having to be wired down. So it sounds very cool. Says, um, looking at Apple's documentation, they say to set up Airport Express using a Windows PC, you can use iTunes. Uh, Yay. Well, that's good. You know, I'd have to, it's really, I mean, it is designed for Macintosh hardware. Yeah. I've never tried it. I'll have to, I'll tell you what, I'll report back next week. I'll try and figure out how I can configure it from a Windows machine. I just, you know, I mean, the truth is if you set it up, you know, kind of in generic DHCP mode. You don't have to configure it at all. You just plug the thing in and, you, and you know, say hello. Right. Uh, I, I was thinking uh, similarly that um, I, uh, you know, I've got Macs, so I could use a Mac to, to get it configured and then use it in Windows mode with, with no problem at all. Um, there is, I guess there's a Windows uh, airport uh, setup application. Oh, good. Yeah. So you, you just use their application. I guess there might be some advantages to having a dedicated application doing this to using the browser to do it i don't think so except maybe just you know for security if it if it lowered the cost of the device because you know you, you'd have to have a browser in that's there true and, and a lot of web page content and so forth so it was a, maybe it's just simpler to do it that way i did note by the way when i when i was doing a little bit of quick, quick pre-podcast research about this everybody's got a travel router now you know linksys netgear d-link uh asus Belkin and Apple are the ones that all that I saw. Right. So it's right. like, you know, whatever brand you like, uh, I can say that, that, you know, the D-Link works that way with, with the little built-in adapter. And yeah, that, that's what you really want, I think. You want something small that you can just toss into your bag and not have a lot of cords, uh, cordage and things dragging around. It sounds like the Apple Express Travel Router is exactly that, too. Pretty small. I think that uh, you, APC may even make a smaller one designed just for laptops. Ah. Yeah. There's stuff around. Steve, we've come to the end of our 12 wonderful questions from our 12 wonderful listeners, and we thank and look, everybody. It's less, we made it in less than two hours. Just. It's a miracle. Barely. <laughs> barely. Uh, I am downloading uh, right now the PDP-8 emulator. Yay. It's beautiful. It it, is a- it's designed for older Macs. Uh, it's, a car, it's, a, uh, it's a carbon application. You have to run it kind of in a... But it runs, seems to run fine. However... Maybe you, you got the wrong one, Leo. Oh, where do I get it from? Um, this, this, I'll tell you where this came from. It came from banhotbar.de. Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. But, um, but it just runs, runs on my Mac. Well, it runs, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not a, it's, it's a, it's a power PC. It does run on Intel. It will run up to Leopard. Um, it is, you know, once you get it running, it's a little cryptic. It's like, well, now what do I do? <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to ask you for help there. Yeah, I was very, very impressed with it. It uh, it uh, it knows when you like drop some source code onto its icon in the whatever you call that on the Mac, the tray or yeah. The, well, you know, it's kind of cool. Um, it it looks like it uh, there was there was an alternate disk image which I got as well that has. I mean, this is it comes with Pascal. Oh yeah, it's got a full OS eight operating system, so you're able to like mount the OS eight drive and run run the original and that was like the final operating system for the pdp8 it's got a front console front panel beautiful rendered console you're able to see the contents of the registers it simulates all the different io devices and you can see that you know what's in them 
Yeah. yeah I mean, you, when, you, when you print something to the file, to the line printer, you can then save it to a disk. Yeah, he did a really nice so, job. But where's the uh, interface for program? Oh, I guess. There it is. There's the console. The tele- a- ASR33 console teletype. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, there's a somewhere, I think he, he's got it in there, is a Towers of Hanoi. Um, program or maybe i typed it in but i remember watching it like you know going and it's like you know you can have it run at 30 or at 10 characters per second just like you know a real teletype did and i remember like i think i might have typed in the focal program which was dex uh interpretive sort of you know response to dartmouth basic back in the day and it you know it like you know, sat there, you know, uh, typing out the, there it the is. height of the towers t- of Hanoi. Yeah. Uh, good. Focal yeah. eight. So now if I open this, it loads it in. And now how do I run it? Do I type run? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, run typing run did not do it, but I'll have yeah, to, I, I'll I would imagine out. you'll, you'll, I mean, I I'll figured it out very easily. And after you get the hang of it, it's you're able to make oh, it look so pretty cool. simple for for people to use. So. Yeah, and that's going to be the key for me is I'm going to take a bunch of you know high school kids and say, guess what? You now have a PDP eight. <laughs> Let's twelve program. a twelve bit computer with four K of memory. Let's program it. What yeah. do you say? Let's oh, make it. I think this is great. What a great way to uh, to teach computer science. You know the kind of fundamentals uh, to start with the, the basic. Leo, when you when that when then you take them to higher level language, they will be so appreciative. <laughs> they'll be grateful. <laughs> instead of just ta- instead of just taking it for granted, they'll be go, oh, thank God, oh. we have variables now oh. instead of you know memory addresses. Yeah. But again, I think I, I'll bet you none of them ever forget that, and it's a valuable lesson. A great way to learn, if you Let's ask see. me. I mean, uh, yeah. maybe maybe it's because we're old timers, but I just think that's a great way to learn. No, I get you know, given the reaction from our listeners to this stuff. You know the gray-haired episodes. Uh, there's there's a lot of appreciation for. it. I mean, there, there's a disassembler window. You can see the memory contents. You can see the stack. You can see the interrupt yeah. controller. I mean, you get to see how it's working. Yep, it's the whole machine made visible. I I, I have a pointer here at uh, address two hundred. That must be the code I loaded in. I wonder if I can just run it from there. That's the and that's the default starting point because the the page zero and then that's two hundred octal which is actually location 128. Ah. So the first page is a special page because remember that we're the the with the instruction format there aren't that many addressing bits. So you're able to only address uh, the 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 page you're in or page 0. So the page 0 is sort of special because you can get to it from anywhere. Otherwise, you're you're only able to address the page you're in. So you keep but page it, zero blank and, and, and there for pointers or things that you need. Exactly. Sort of like your global variables that you want to be able Got to it. access as Got you it. wander through code space. Oh, this is so cool. It really is. It's just. Do you have a, is, is, do you have a, a manual or somewhere that, uh, online that you recommend uh, for people who, I mean, I'd like to learn more about this before I try to teach anybody how to use it. Yeah. Um, I might have to get a PDP-8 manual. There is a. There's a bunch of stuff. There's some t- tutorials. It looks like on the built website. in, yeah. And there, there is a, there's a. Uh, I'm gonna say Chicago or Indiana. There, there's a, there's a college that is using this and using the PDP-8 for their curriculum. That's what and I need. That professor has a whole bunch of really nice sort of laid out, like you know, here's the memory reference instructions for the PDP-8 and so forth. That's what I need. I need to. Uh, I need. To, I need to steal somebody's curricula. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Tower of Ho- the Towers of Hanoi focal source code is focal uh, like a language, like basic. Yes, uh, fo- focal. It was uh, Dex' sort of answer to Dartmouth Basic, and so it's a funky language. But you know, I mean, it was very popular, and people were using sure. it on on. You know, it also comes with language. with Fortran and uh, Pascal S. So you you're you're in pretty good shape here. This is a this is a great little development environment. Yeah. All you need is a Macintosh. <laughs> All you have to do is buy a thousand dollar computer and you can and run it. It'll slow you down to ten characters per second. It does. It warns you. It says, This is really slow. Be patient. Interpreted focal programs running on a PDP eight simulated by a slower or faster Macintosh are very slow. <laughs> this is the old days, folks. Yep. Thank you, Steve Gibson. For more information, of course, Steve has his show notes online at grc.com. Also, 16 kilobit versions of the show for quick download. Transcript, so you can read along. Uh, there's the forums there, the security forums. You can leave feedback at grc.com slash feedback. And, of course, don't forget, there's some great stuff on there. Freeze to download, shields up to test your uh, router, um, Wismo, decombobulator, a lot of free stuff. And the bread and butter of the whole operation, SpinRite. GRC.com. Steve, we'll see you next week on Security Now. I got some PDPA programming to do here. Cool. Thanks, Leo. <laughs> see ya. Security Now.